Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Hello, I'd like to welcome you again to our study in this wonderful book of Exodus. And let's just begin to ask God to help us. Lord, we need you every day, but especially when we open your book, the Bible. We need you, Lord, precious Lord, to teach us, to open our eyes, to reveal to us, Lord, the truths that you have within your word. We thank you, Lord, that you want to do this, and we thank you even now for answering our prayer in advance because we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we're gonna continue on, if you Uh, Have your Bible there, turn it open to Exodus chapter 3. As you can say, we're spending a little bit of time here in Exodus, and so as a result, the pages on my Bible are curling up, but anyway, they're still readable. Exodus chapter 3. Again, just for context, we'll read this part here, beginning at verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." Now, in our last study, we've really been focusing down here on verses 7 and 8 and seeing how important to Revelation this is of exactly who is Jehovah Jesus. And we saw from verse 7 how emphatic he was about having the affliction of the people of his people, the Jewish people of Israel, having that affliction front and center 
before his face, as he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. We saw how not only did he see their affliction, but he heard his people who were crying to him, as he said, I've heard their cry by reason of the taskmasters. So he saw and he heard, and these are the themes here as we're looking at this verse. He saw and he heard and he knew. He saw, he heard, he felt. And we're gonna be looking today at exactly what it meant when he saw, what it meant when he heard, what it meant when he knew their sorrows. And he saw this and he said, I've heard their cry by reason of the taskmasters. Now, there is this psalm, this wonderful psalm in the center of the Bible that predicts that 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 predicts the suffering, it describes the suffering, it describes the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. And this is the Psalm 22 that David king of Israel has given us. And he's told us something very important in the midst of that psalm. And it's a wonderful psalm. I try to read that psalm every single day, Psalm 22 along with Isaiah 53. But turn, if you would, in your Bible to that psalm, Psalm 22 and verse 24. It relates to what we're looking at here in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But look at Psalm 22, verse 24, because here in this verse, Psalm 22, 24, the Lord Jesus Christ, it's speaking about him. And what it says there about him, it says these words, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, in other words, from the afflicted, But when he, in other words, the afflicted, when he cried unto him, he heard. Position of that verse is very, very important. That's verse 24 in Psalm 22. And it's a very important verse. It's a very important position. Why? Because Psalm 22 has two parts to it. The first part of Psalm 22 goes from the beginning, from verse 1, all the way to verse 21. And in that part, we have a very intimate, close description of the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection right there in those 21 verses there. That's very, very important. That's part one. It's a description of the sufferings of his death, of his resurrection there in the first 21 verses. Now, The second part of Psalm 22 is from verse 22 on to the end, the last verse, Psalm uh, verse uh, 31. But in verse 24 is obviously in the second part, and that's important because that means that verse 24 is after, or in consequence, you might say, of his death and resurrection. So it's after his death, it's after his resurrection where we find him saying in verse 24 that he's not gonna despise, he's not about to despise, he's not gonna abhor, he's not about to abhor the affliction of the afflicted and he's not gonna hide his face from the afflicted and when the afflicted cries, he promises to hear. So again, 
following his death, following what he went through and all the sufferings of his so-called passion there, of his death and his resurrection, following that, he comes forth out of that in the resurrection with a new resolve, a resolve that he is not gonna despise the affliction of the afflicted. He's not gonna abhor their affliction. He's not gonna hide his face from them. He is going to hear when they cry. So that verse coming at the description of his death and his resurrection, it tells us when we consider its place in verse 24 there, after the suffering, death, and resurrection, it tells us why, why he's not going to despise. It tells us why he's not going to abhor the affliction of the afflicted. It tells us why. It gives us impact and power to understand the impact and the force of these words as to why he's not going to hide his face, why he is going to hear when the afflicted call. Why? Because, it's the second part, because of the first part. Because the first part is his own personal experience. That's the power behind the statement in Exodus 3.8 where we read, I know their sorrows. That's a very powerful statement that he's making and we can't understand the power of that statement until we look at something like Psalm 22 and then we understand, oh, He said, I know their sorrows. I know what he means when he says, I know their sorrows. Because when he said, I know their sorrows, it doesn't mean that, you know, he picks up a newspaper and reads about it and he's familiar with their sorrows and he can say, well, yeah, I see now they're, you know, they're really crying a lot and they're mourning and they're not sleeping. It doesn't mean he's got the factual description there, like he's got some kind of report, much more. Much, much more it's meant, but he says, I know their sorrows. It means there's an impact to it. And we're going to look at that. It's far more. Because it's true, it's true that, of course, he was familiar and he knew the information about that. And it's true also, and at this point when this is written, he hadn't died on the cross yet or been raised from the dead. Uh, that's going to happen over a thousand years later. But He is God. He is God the Son. He's God the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he has the ability, unlike us, to look down the tunnel of time and to see what was happening in the future, what's going to happen in the future, as if it's happening right now. We can't do that, but he can. And that's why when you look at a verse like Revelation 13.8, which says, it speaks about those whose names are written in the book of life, And then it makes this statement. It's the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, wait a minute. It says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. How could the lamb be slain from the foundation of the world? The lamb was slain in 2,000 years ago, what we call zero or 33, whatever. But anyways, it happened at a certain point in time. And 2,000 years ago was not the time from the foundation of the world. It was not the time of the foundation of the world. That was much earlier, right? The foundation of the world. What does it mean here in Revelation 13:8, where it speaks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world? That's God. God is able to look at an event from the foundation of the world and to see it and experience it as if it was right now. He is outside of the limitation of time. We are bound. We are creatures of time. We are bound by time. Not God. God can look 
and see and experience. So don't, we don't get hung up by the fact that the cross has not happened yet in Exodus 3. We don't get hung up by that because we're, dealing, because we're talking about God here. And because we're talking about God, he has this ability. So when he says, I know their sorrows, he's speaking from the experience of the cross, even though it hasn't happened yet. And when Jehovah Jesus says, I know their sorrows, in verse 8 here of chapter Exodus, he's referring to his own sufferings for sins, for our sins. And that's how he knows. It's not just a knowledge, but it's a heart experience. And so, in fact, when he says that I know their sorrows, it means he knows from personal experience. And when we think about that, of course, we live on this side of the cross, so it's easier for us to understand. But nevertheless, when we think of that, that when he says, I know their sorrows, that he's speaking from the personal experience of the cross, that makes him for us the great, great high priest. And that's brought out for us. And that's what the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, is communicating for us when it says these words, we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. So there's great words there. It talks about what we have. We have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. Our high priest is so great because our high priest can be, he can be touched. It's such a personal, intimate word, touched. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And what we read here in Exodus 3.8, when it says, I know their sorrows, he was touched with the feeling of their sorrows. He was touched by it, the feeling of our infirmities as it speaks of there in Hebrews 4.15. But was an all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So we have sin, but he does not. We have sorrows, he has sorrows. We have weaknesses, he had weaknesses when he was here. We are very much affected and he is very much touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now, that knowledge that he became, that knowledge that he has comes from the fact that he became a man. And he became a man with the weaknesses of a man. And he suffered as a man. And that, when we really grab a hold of that, when that truth grabs a hold of us, when we really get into that, it will have an effect on us, and the effect is described in the next verse, in verse 16, where it says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The effect that it will have on us is that it will give us a boldness, a boldness. It's saying that when it comes to the department of us needing mercy and us needing grace, then when we focus on how he knows our sorrows, as he said in Exodus 3, 8, 3, 7, when he says that, for I know their sorrows, when we really focus on why he knows our sorrows, because he humbled himself and became a man, and he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, but he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities because he had those infirmities himself. When we get a hold of that, that will generate within us a great boldness to come to God's throne and get mercy and grace that we we need in time of trouble. So from verse 8, 
we now can see that we have, sorry, from verse seven, we now can see that we have a new name for God. We love these names of God. We love the names of the Lord. Why? Because we put them in our toolbox and we use them. We call on God. We say, that's, I need, I need God to be compassionate. So I'm gonna call on the name of the Lord, the Lord who knows our sorrows. That's the name. The name, Lord who knows our sorrows, and then we get mercy and grace in time of need. New name. Now, the chapter in the Bible that gives the real body behind the statement in verse eight, Exodus 3, 8, I know their sorrows, the chapter that really gives the body to it is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that gives the body, it gives the meaning, it gives the depth, what we can understand by this statement, I know their sorrows. So if you please turn to Isaiah 53, and we can look at Isaiah 53 as the resource that gives us answers to questions we could ask from about Exodus 3-7. So in other words, this is a chapter that gives us the body and the real force to Exodus 3-7 is Isaiah chapter 53. So in Isaiah chapter 53, we get the body and the meaning of Exodus 3-7. So if you turn to that, okay. Now, first of all, we can ask the question. From Exodus chapter three, verse seven, where he says, I know their sorrows. I know their sorrows. We could raise the question, how? How did he know their sorrows? Now we look at Isaiah 53.3. Isaiah 53.3, third verse Isaiah. And we read these words. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, again, the other chapter goes along with Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, describing the sufferings of the cross that made him so familiar with sorrow. It made him so knowing what sorrow was by his own personal experience that he's got a name here, another new name for the Lord. The name is a man of sorrows. Lord, the man of sorrows, oh, the power that comes when we call on that name from our toolbox. He is the Lord, the man of sorrows. That's his name. And so therefore we understand. Now, we understand. Another question we get from Exodus 3-7 when he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people from Exodus 3-7. And we ask the question, how? How did he see the affliction of his people? How did that work? And we go now to Isaiah 53, 4 for this answer where it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, Isaiah 53, 4 explains to us something, an aspect of these afflictions that's very, very important to understand. What kind of afflictions was he going through there? It explains to us that the afflictions that he experienced on the cross were because God was afflicting him. They were burdensome because God was afflicting him. That's what it says there. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. 
and afflicted. And he was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So we esteemed it right because that's, in fact, what was happening. How do we know that? Because it says just a few verses down in the 10th verse of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. What does that mean? It means that God afflicted him. God bruised him. Just like the song goes, Jehovah lifted up his rod. O Christ, it fell on thee. See, to be afflicted by God, which was what happened here, is the worst type of affliction because that's the Supreme Court. God is the Supreme Court. There ain't no appeal beyond that. In other words, there's no one to appeal to. If God is the one who's doing the affliction, there's no one to appeal to. That's it. That's why it says in Hebrews 10, 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And it was a fearful thing when the Lord Jesus Christ fell into the hands of the living God to be afflicted, to be bruised. It was a fearful thing. Now, why did this happen? Why was he being afflicted by God? Why was it God that was afflicting him? Well, the reason is, is given in Isaiah 53, verse 6, the sixth verse, because it explains our problem and God's solution. Our problem is described as this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What's our problem? Waywardness, independence from God, my way. Frank Sinatra doing it my way. That's the problem. That's S-I-N, sin. That comes from P-R-I-D-E, pride. Pride, I know better than God. I'm not gonna have this man rule over me. I'm not gonna have God rule over me. I'm gonna run my own life. That is what is described here. That is like all we like being a sheep and going astray and turning everyone to whose way? Our way. It's my way. I'm the master of my own destiny. Nobody tells me what to do. I do what I wanna do because I turn everyone to my own way. I turn to my own way. See, that's the description of the problem in Isaiah 53, 6. But God's solution Praise God, there's no period there because right away we have the word and, which is now God's remedy, God's solution, and God's solution is the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, that was the plan of God. The plan of God to save us from our sins was to lay on him the iniquity of us all. That's explained over and over and over again. That is a thread that we keep seeing appear throughout Isaiah 53. We see this thread of God's plan to redeem us, to justify us, to save us from our sins, and we see it over and over and over again, and that's it in Isaiah 53, 6. It appears there where it says, the Lord hath laid on him him the iniquity of us all. Down in verse 11, for he shall bear their iniquities. And again in verse 12, he bore the sin of many. And as he said, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The thread keeps appearing over and over again of our waywardness, God's solution to lay on him the iniquity of us all, that he should bear the sins of many and he should be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's God's plan. So what we see there 
first of all, is that he was being afflicted by God. But there's another aspect of this as well in Isaiah 53, 7, when it speaks about he was oppressed and he was afflicted. So his afflictions were oppressive. They were burdensome. They burdened him down. It's amazing that he was able to bear up under this oppressive affliction that was on him from the cross. So when, from, when we read these words in Exodus 3, 7, where it says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. When we couple that together with Isaiah 53, the power of this word surely comes through. I have surely seen the affliction of my people. He not only saw the affliction, but he knew from his own personal experience exactly what the people were going through who were being afflicted. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened to and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org and sign up for his daily devotional. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestorationministries.org. You can write to Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711330, P.O. Box 711330, Santee, California. Santee, California, 92071. Or email Tom Cantor at tomcantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800 247 3051. What are you doing Sunday nights? Join Friendship with God radio Bible teacher Tom Cantor of the Friendship with God Fellowship Church every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Watch and listen live around the world to Tom Cantor Sunday evening on YouTube.com by searching for the Friendship with God Fellowship or by going to our homepage at friendshipwithgod.org. 